History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is the History of Persia, episode 46, The Persian Emperor. Last time on this podcast, we said goodbye to Darius the Great, and left him entombed in a cruciform tomb carved into the mountain at Naqsh-e-Rustam. Then we began the reign of Xerxes, Darius's eldest royal-born son, who had to compete with his older, non-royal brothers for the throne in an apparently bloodless contest. We're rapidly approaching Xerxes' famous invasion of Greece, but first we have to face rebellions, beginning with Egypt. We are also rapidly barreling toward the 50th episode of the History of Persia. To celebrate this milestone, episode 50 will be an AMA, an Ask Me Anything episode. You can ask me questions about history, the podcast, or myself, and I'll do my best to get you answers. You can ask your questions through all of the usual methods. You can email me, either directly at historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com, or through the contact page on historyofpersiapodcast.com. I'm open for messages on all forms of social media, so you can also ask at historyofpersia on Twitter, or at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Patreon supporters, of course, can also find me there. And of course, if you know where to find me somewhere else, like Discord or Reddit, go for it and message me there too. 
So send in your questions. They're starting to trickle in, and I'm really excited to answer them. Now, on with the regular show. Darius the Great died, presumably of illness, in 486 BCE. After a disputed transition, his son Xerxes took power over the Persian Empire, which in theory stretched uninterrupted from Libya and Macedon in the west to the Indus River and Tian Shan Mountains in the east. In reality, there were some significant disruptions in this picture when Xerxes came to power. Right up to his death, it's literally carved in stone on his tomb, Darius claimed that he had conquered the Saka Paradraya, the European Scythians that inhabited what is now Ukraine. Evidently, Darius never officially admitted that his European expedition across the Danube had been a horrible wild goose chase. Xerxes obviously abandoned this pretension, and the Saka Paradraya are no longer included on his inscriptions. The other, significantly more distressing disruption was in Egypt. Conquered by Cambyses in 525 BCE, the former kingdom of the two lands had already gone into revolt twice. Once, briefly in 524, before Cambyses even had time to leave the country, and then again in 522, following Cambyses' death and Bardia's coup. The second revolt may not have been fully defeated for almost a decade. Now, once again, Egypt had refused to pay tribute and backed a self-declared pharaoh in rebellion against the Persian kings. This rebellion is even more poorly documented than the last two Egyptian revolts. The circumstances and catalyst for the first are at least described by Herodotus, and by me in episodes 16 and 17. Ironically, a lot of historians seem not to count that as a rebellion and just roll it into the conquest of Egypt, but it's definitely described as a rebellion by Herodotus. The rebel pharaoh Petubastet from 522 is at least referenced in the right ways in the right places to understand where he held the most sway. But the revolt of 486 is really sketchy it doesn't seem to have started as a sudden uprising. One of the crucial sources for the Achaemenid period, and Achaemenid Egypt in particular, is the Elephantine Papyri, a collection of letters and records written on papyrus from the Nile island of Elephantine in southern Egypt. Elephantine is probably worthy of an episode, or maybe at least a bonus episode, all on its own. It was historically a border fort and still housed a garrison during the Achaemenid period. This garrison had a lot of well-preserved correspondence with the outside world in the form of both Demotic letters to other people in Egypt and Aramaic with the rest of the Persian Empire. Demotic is an ancient Egyptian language written in script rather than hieroglyphs. I'll come back to both of these categories repeatedly, but today we are largely interested in the Demotic letters exchanged with the Persian satrap Ferendates. Ferendates was a distant cousin of the royal family, who I mentioned in episode 41. He was the son of Megabazus, who led the initial conquest of Thrace and occupation of Macedon. While Ferendates' brothers were made satraps in Hellespontine Phrygia, Ferendates was sent to Egypt to replace the former satrap Ariandes when his independent streak started to look a little too much like rebellion for Darius's taste. 
Again, interesting to note that we just barely dodged another Egyptian rebellion. It's not clear when exactly the transition took place, sometime in the mid-490s BCE. Ariandes drops out of the historical record in 496, and Ferendotes appears in 492. It's interesting to speculate that this might have had something to do with Egypt's tenuous position while Cyprus was in revolt, or something related to the Ionian War, but really we know nothing about this transition. Ferendotes and Ariandes are both known from just a few letters that shed a little light on their interaction with their subjects. Some of it is just administrative information about their estates, which were worked by a large number of slaves and needed significant provisions. A few, though, notably letters from Elephantine, tell us about the role of the Egyptian satrap and history in the last years of Darius's reign. From what we can tell, most of the day-to-day -day responsibilities of the pharaohs had passed to the satraps. We know that Cambyses carried out some religious duties while he was in-country, but for the most part, religious ceremonies, legal appeals, and building commissions were now directed by the satrap in the pharaoh's name, while the pharaoh was busy being king of kings in Persia. One letter sent from Elephantine to Ferendotes, in particular, might reference a revolt brewing in 486. The garrison was sending a party up the Nile to pick up supplies, and probably send out any correspondence headed north. Their letter to the satrap expressed concern that this small expedition could be attacked by rebels. We don't have any context for these rebels, apparently threatening royal troops in southern Egypt, but sometime after 486, Ferendotes vanishes from the historic record, and it's likely that he was killed by these same rebels. If we combine the evidence of that letter from Elephantine with the death of Ferendotes, then it seems like the rebellion grew gradually before overthrowing the Persian rulers in Memphis. Ferendotes was rejected and killed in 486, and his successor, a full brother of Xerxes named Achaemenes, first appears in the Egyptian record in 484. We don't really know who was in charge of Egypt in the meantime. Herodotus tells us nothing, and whoever they were, they didn't rule Egypt long enough to leave much of a mark on the landscape. The best guess is a pharaoh identified as Samtik IV, who is possibly mentioned in four places from the Egyptian archaeological record. The handle of an instrument called a sistrum, a single scarab amulet, a scrap of papyrus, and a funerary figurine. So all tiny, scant references and nothing definitive. Several Greek and Roman authors also make references to a Samtic, who would have been alive around this time and part of a royal family. The problem for properly identify this fourth Samtic is that the third had just been executed by Cambyses less than 40 years earlier. Complicating it even more, two more Egyptian pharaohs in the century after our supposed Samtik IV bring our total up to six Samtiks, most of them living within the Achaemenid period. One thing that helps us solidify the existence of Samtik IV as the rebel pharaoh in 486 is that both the Sistrum Handle and the Scarab have royal names alongside Samtik, 
not paired with any of the earlier three examples. The problem is that these two objects have different royal names. Fortunately, we also know that there's plenty of room for more than one pharaoh named Samtik in that collection, so even if one object is from a later claimant, the other can still be our guy. The second piece of evidence for Pharaoh Samtik IV is that a later rebel, Pharaoh Inaros's father, is identified as Samtik in the 460s BCE. The timeline for that works out to be our Samtik IV. Identifying Samtik IV with Inaros is interesting because it suggests that Samtik was, in fact, Libyan rather than ethnically Egyptian. This can be taken as evidence that he was somehow descended from the pharaohs of the 26th dynasty, which was conquered by Cambyses. The repeated rebellions and continuous identification as Libyans would also imply that this family maintained some kind of power base in eastern Libya, even after they were defeated by the Persians on numerous occasions. We're left with a very rough theoretical picture of a rebellion led by a descendant of Egypt's last independent dynasty, tentatively identified as Samtik IV. Anti-Persian hostilities began threatening loyal troops in 487 or 486, and Samtik seized control of Memphis just before Darius's death. Egyptian archives, inscriptions, and artwork are also useful in solidifying these dates. For a long time, the year 486 was based entirely on Herodotus's chronology from Marathon to Egypt to Greece again, but more recent work with Egyptian records helps confirm this. Collections directly connected to the Persian administration, like the military garrison at Elephantine, or artwork sold for exports, have dates from the 35th year under Darius and the 1st and 2nd years under Xerxes. Several native Egyptian collections cut off at one of those two dates, apparently disrupted by the revolt. The king's death slowed the Persian response and allowed the Egyptians to hold their land, or at least fight only the Persian loyalists for a year. But once he was officially king, Xerxes moved swiftly to retake the satrapy. Both Herodotus and the timeline of events heavily imply that Xerxes directed the whole invasion force his father had gathered to attack Greece and turned it on Egypt. This may have been overkill for what was ultimately a local revolt, but this particular rebellion was too important not to receive the full treatment. The transition process had allowed it to go on relatively unchallenged. They had killed a Persian satrap. Egypt was an invaluable source of both grain and tax revenue. It also had a rebellious history. Egypt would be invaluable in the upcoming invasion of Greece. Egyptian ships and sailors would be conscripted, that grain and tax would be used to supply the army, and an independent Egypt could ally itself with the Greek resistance and threaten Persian dominance in the Aegean. But perhaps most importantly of all, it was an opportunity for King Xerxes to make a good first impression on his empire. Xerxes, possibly even more than Cambyses, had big shoes to fill. Darius proved himself to be a giant in the empire before most of the provinces even acknowledged his kingship, but Xerxes was relatively untested. 
the revolt in Egypt was his chance to show what kind of king he could be. How would he respond to rebellion? Was he an effective leader? Was his heartland secure? And did the nobility support him? A military campaign was a way to test all of that, and the rebellion in Egypt provided a relatively safe test case before dealing with all of the unknowns of Greece. Probably in the spring of 485, Xerxes took command of his father's army and marched on Egypt. Unfortunately, we know nothing about the conflict with Samtik IV other than the fact that it happened and Xerxes was ultimately successful. We don't really even know what repercussions Egypt faced as punishment for their insolence. The one hint we get is evidence, or lack thereof, that the sons of Darius were not as supportive of local traditions as their father had been. Satrap Achaemenes is not well attested in the Egyptian record, and Xerxes does not seem to have embraced his role of pharaoh. Cambyses and Darius had both assumed Egyptian royal names and titles for use in Egyptian documents. In his response to his own Egyptian revolt, Darius had even sponsored building projects to put his name all over the western oases where the rebels had been strongest. He took this approach of trying to appeal to the Egyptians. Xerxes, on the other hand, is almost unknown in Egyptian art and architecture, and apparently he did not take a pharaonic throne name. His name appears in hieroglyphs on one vase as simply the direct transliteration of his Persian name into hieroglyphs. Maybe it reflects their position at the start of their respective reigns. Darius made an appeal and an effort to appear as the legitimate king of Egypt with the help of Egyptian advisors, while he was still only tenuously the king of Persia through a coup. Xerxes was indisputably the heir of the empire on both sides of his family, and had never had any doubts to the contrary. Darius had lived through and probably participated in the conquest of Egypt, which had now been Persian territory for Xerxes' entire life. The different outlook seems clear. To Xerxes, Egypt was his, and always had been. Not because he was pharaoh, but because he was the king of all other kings. From there, Herodotus portrays it as Xerxes went home to Susa, more confident in his ability to lead an invasion of Greece, after his success in Egypt. He reassembled the army, adjusted the invasion plans to reflect new circumstances, then marched back across Mesopotamia and followed the Mediterranean coast north instead of south. But that didn't happen until 480, which leaves us with four or five years, and those years weren't quiet. You almost never see it discussed in scholarship from the last 70 years, but 19th and early 20th century historians speculated on the possibility of a rebellion in Judea around the same time as the Egyptian campaign. Modern historians have mostly dismissed this for lack of evidence, but many, frustratingly, continue to reference it without explaining where this idea came from. And yes, that's just me venting about annoying trends in the books I read. The origin for this theoretical Judean uprising seems to have come from a single Bible verse, and the lack of references to Xerxes in the historical books of the Bible. Unlike his father, and the amalgam of different Artaxerxes that followed him, 
Xerxes himself doesn't seem to have had any major interaction with the Jewish exiles trying to reestablish their ancestral capital at Jerusalem. There's just one verse in the book of Ezra that mentions him before moving on to the events in the reign of his son, Artaxerxes I. Ezra, chapter 4, describes the opposition of the local pagan population to the construction of a new Jewish temple in Jerusalem, probably a symptom of resistance to the reoccupation of Judea by the Jewish exiles in general, which is one hell of a historical parallel. As Ezra tells it, this opposition was led by the descendants of foreigners settled in the region as deportees themselves, who had incorporated the Jewish god into their own pantheon. However, this heterodoxy put them at odds with the Persian governor Zerubbabel and the Jewish hierarchy, who had the official support of Darius to rebuild their temple. Ezra describes how the locals harassed the Jewish workers and bribed officials to slow down progress on the building project. Then, Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, is just the enigmatic line, In the reign of Xerxes in his accession year, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. There's also the ever-present shadow of the book of Esther, which I've discussed before, and plan to devote a whole episode to in the future. Xerxes is the most likely candidate for the king in Esther, who is nearly convinced to persecute the Jews by one of his advisors. There's no direct evidence, but scholars a hundred years ago speculated that these might be vague references to unrest in the tiny province of Yehud during the reign of Xerxes. If there was any violence or rebellion in Jerusalem at the outset of Xerxes' reign, they would not have had to wait long for a response as Judea was right along the route to and from Egypt. Any theoretical unrest would easily have been settled by the huge army on its way to Egypt and the presence of the king himself. Not to mention, Judea just was much too small to effectively resist the whole empire on its own, let alone if it was only part of the Judean populace. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. 
And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. The second major rebellion against Xerxes came in 484, immediately on the tails of the Egyptian revolt. It's possible, likely even, that it started while Xerxes was still in the West, potentially explaining some of the strange issues with chronology. In the second year under Xerxes, Babylonia went into rebellion. Herodotus makes only the vaguest reference to the events, leaving us dependent on a combination of Theseus, and more importantly, the archives of the Babylonians themselves. Xerxes' Babylonian revolts are an interesting parallel to the revolt in Egypt, because in Mesopotamia, we know exactly who the rebel leaders were, but the timeline is disputed by our sources. Sometime after 485, several Babylonian cities were in revolt. At that point, the satrapy of Babarush was more or less as Darius had left it in 521 after its last rebellion under the Armenian liar king Araka, who claimed to be Nebuchadnezzar IV. The satrap was still Zopirus, who Herodotus says mutilated himself in order to infiltrate the city and betray the Babylonians to Darius. The province itself was still very large, with Zopirus governing the whole empire of the former Babylonian king Nabonidus, and the city of Babylon itself was still very much one of the Achaemenid royal capitals. At some point after Xerxes came to power, there were two rebels who claimed the titles of the king of Babylon. One was Shamash Ereba, and the other was Bel Shimani. Neither seems to have reigned for more than a year, since the tablets are both dated to their first, but nothing after that. The problem for historians is that a tablet dated to the first year under one rebel doesn't tell you anything about which year under Xerxes that corresponds to, and none of the tablets reference any other events or astronomy that could be used as an anchor. And of course, it's not like these things are found in chronological order when we're digging them up in the desert. The solution is to try and identify the regnal years under Xerxes, which are missing from the archives that also contain tablets dated to the reign of Shamash Ereba or Belshamani. Unfortunately, that doesn't actually rule much out. Using that logic, our options are Xerxes' regnal years 2, 7, 9, 11, 13, 14, 18, and 20, which is an impractically large range. Fortunately, there is a second piece of information that helps us pick a date. Much like Egypt, we can identify the Babylonian archives that suddenly stopped keeping records around the time of these rebellions. Evidently, they, or the families that maintained them, 
were discontinued by the Persian administrators in 484 BCE. A few limp on for years after that, and a few start around the same time or just before it. The ones that cut out in 484 include the famous archives from the city of Borsippa and the Agibi banking family, both of which are some of the most ancient collections that were still in use by the Persian period. In fact, most of the ancient archives, the ones most directly connected to the pre-Persian Babylonian aristocracy, come to an abrupt halt in 484. In fact, the only archive that continues on from similar antiquity is the Galabu archive from Ur, a city which did not participate in these uprisings. And wouldn't you know it, 484 would be regnal year 2 under Xerxes, which is in fact one of our options for the date of this rebellion. So we can be pretty certain that there was a rebellion in 484. And we can even say that it began in July. The first tablets from both rebels come from the same time of the year. This still leaves us with a lot of questions about the timeline. Belshamani's reign was short-lived, only lasting a month or two. Shamash Ereba, on the other hand, was first recognized as king in July, and held some power until October. Our usual narrative sources aren't much help. Herodotus and Arian, two of the most stalwart and relied-upon sources for Achaemenid history, both reference a revolt and not much more. Theseus, on the other hand, notes that there were two Babylonian rebellions against Xerxes, which makes him most accurate to the primary sources for a change. He tells us that Megabyzus was the Persian commander who defeated the first rebellion. Herodotus identifies Megabyzus as the son of Zopyrus, and his father's successor as satrap of Babylon, which probably means that Zopyrus, much like his Egyptian counterpart, was killed by rebels. Theseus then says that Xerxes personally dealt with the second revolt. From the timeline in Egypt, it's entirely possible that Xerxes just wasn't available in July of 484. But it still does very little to tell us about the chronology we see in these loose cuneiform tablets. We have a couple of possibilities. One is that both rebellions started because of some catalyst in July of 484 BCE. Belshamani was mostly recognized by the cities in the south, while Shamash Araba had his base of support in the north. The two may have competed against one another until Shamash Araba defeated and absorbed Belshamani's forces. Alternatively, Belshamani was based in the south, closer to Babylon, and may be the rebel defeated by Megabyzus before Xerxes could arrive. Either way, support for Shamash Araba gradually spread to the south until Shamash Araba controlled most of Babylonia, including the capital. Only the southernmost cities like Ur and Uruk remained under Persian control. Finally, in October, the Persians were able to gain the upper hand and crush Shamash Araba and his rebels. Xerxes clearly identified their ties to the old Babylonian establishment and punished those families or organizations, leading to the termination of all of their archives. That's one-ish option, and it's the one that seems to be the most accepted by modern scholars. But there is also a second option, which becomes a lot more apparent when we look at the Greek sources. 
Theseus tells us that Babylon revolted twice, but on two separate occasions. Normally, Theseus can kind of be ignored when other sources contradict events before his own lifetime. But Arian, the Roman who most famously wrote our best surviving history of Alexander the Great, mentions that Babylon revolted in 479 BCE, when Xerxes was returning from Greece. Even Herodotus adds to this picture. We are nearing the end of our time with Herodotus as the primary source for Persian history. After 479, his histories come to an end, even though they were written more than 30 years later. Why? Well, they're probably unfinished. He promises stories and details that are not included in the histories as they exist today. Most of the missing details are presumed to be about the later stages of the war between the Persian Empire and the Greek allies, but one missing thread may be related to the Babylonian revolts. Herodotus promises his audience that he will tell the history of Babylon and discuss Babylonian culture, but that section of the histories never appears. He discusses the history of Egypt in relation to Cambyses' conquest and the history of the Scythians and Indians in relation to Darius's wars, and uses very other actions between the Persians and the Greeks to go on tangents about Greek history. It's entirely plausible that he had similar plans for Babylon, but never got to the event that he intended to use as his segue. If that's the case, then it would seem that he had plans to revisit Babylon sometime after the Persians were expelled from Europe. This could, potentially, agree with Arian and Theseus. And lo and behold, one of the missing years, the years that could possibly have been the first under Belshamani or Shamash Ereba, is Regnal Year 7 under Xerxes, or 479 BCE. That possibility, combined with the Greek sources, seems too good to pass up, so it's entirely plausible that one of these Babylonian dynasts rebelled and killed Satrap Zopyrus in 486, only to be defeated by Megabyzus while Xerxes was still in Egypt, while the other only rebelled in 479, to be defeated by Xerxes himself, presumably leading part of the invasion force away from the Aegean to deal with Mesopotamia. Megabyzus is even noted as being in the Aegean while this was happening, so we can explain why the satrap wasn't there to put down this second revolt. The possibility has even led some writers to speculate that Xerxes was so distracted by Babylon that it saved the Greeks from a second Persian offensive. In this scenario, with two separate rebellions, it just leaves us wondering which was which and which revolutionaries received which punishments. It's clear from the records that there was some kind of massive culling of the Babylonian aristocracy in 484, which suggests that the First Revolt could have been more severe, probably the work of Shamash Ereba. That would make 479 the short-lived revolt of Belshamani, a sort of last gasp of Babylonian independence. On the other hand, if we say that Megabyzus put down the first revolt, then maybe Belshamani's minor revolt was in 484, and Shamash Ereba had some more time to gather power while both the king and satrap were in Greece. 
It could also make a little more sense that the revolt lasted until October, if we think Xerxes had to respond from further away. Or again, this is all incorrect in speculation, and they might have all happened in 484. The possibilities and combinations start to boggle the mind. At any rate, I'm skipping ahead with all this discussion of what happened after Xerxes returned from Greece. I actually considered returning to this topic and discussing the second option in the right place of the timeline, but I think, one, it wouldn't be long enough for its own episode, and it makes sense to keep it all together thematically. Regardless of which chronology we accept, the second rebel, who was defeated by Xerxes himself, earned Babylon a slew of destructive punishments. In addition to whatever punishment of the Babylonian establishment disrupted their archives, several severe punishments were meted out on the city of Babylon itself. The outer defensive wall was torn down, and according to several of our sources, Xerxes disrupted the Esagila, the main temple of the preeminent Babylonian god Marduk. Some sources say he destroyed the temple outright, others that he looted the golden statue of the god or melted it down. Some scholars use this as evidence that there was a religious element to the conflict, while others have argued that the story of destroying the Esagila is fictitious and Xerxes probably didn't destroy the statue. I see no reason to assume either of those things. In Babylonia, a ceremony involved the legitimate king grasping the hand of Marduk, that statue, inside the Esagila. If Xerxes destroyed the statue, it sent plainly a political message that there would be no more kings of Babylon. Later texts from the Seleucid period make references to the Esagila, suggesting that it had been rebuilt, or at least was still there. But we shouldn't be surprised that the Babylonians rebuilt their most important cult center and idol. In fact, at least one later source suggests that the statue of Marduk was made of wood, possibly confirming that Xerxes had the golden original destroyed. If Babylonian sources, Xerxes became the first king to be acknowledged as the king of Persia in addition to, or in place of, the king of Babylon and the king of Sumer and Akkad. The Babylonian titles fell away completely under his successors. Much like Egypt, I think we're seeing a new political stance from Xerxes. He was the first king of kings to inherit the whole empire. Cambyses still had to conquer Egypt, and his father had to reconquer much of the empire with no legitimacy. Xerxes, though, was raised with the understanding that all of this was his, not as separate kingdoms or possible conquests, but as one whole empire. The message in Egypt and Babylon seems clear to me. He abandoned the local titles and stopped privileging those two most historically powerful provinces. They were part of the empire, and they would act like it, or face the consequences. In Babylon's case, those consequences were severe. And that's why I picked the title for this episode, The Persian Emperor. Emperor is, of course, derived from the Roman title Imperator, and I avoid using it because there are so many great king titles based on the Achaemenids. But today felt appropriate. Xerxes was the first king of kings to really come to power in a way that really feels like an emperor. So now, with the Persian Empire securely under his rule, Xerxes returned to his war plans, 
building projects and administration continued, but Xerxes picked up where his father left off and turned his attention to the northwest. Over the next four years, he reassembled the invasion force and called up troops from across the empire. Then, Xerxes and his army began the long march to Greece, which is where I will pick up the next episode. Until then, you can find more information about the podcast at historyofpersiapodcast.com. There you will find things like my bibliography, The Persian Family Tree, and the support page for the website now featuring a one-time donation button. So if you don't want to commit to the monthly subscription option over on Patreon, you can use that to still support the show financially. Of course, if you do want to send money every month, Patreon is the way to do it. And of course, I don't need or expect everyone to financially support the podcast. That would be awesome, and I would be blown away by it, but I can hardly expect it in a year like this. But you can still support the history of Persia. Share it on social media, tell your friends, leave reviews on iTunes or Podcast Addict or whatever else you use. If you have me in your Spotify roundup for the year, Put that out there on social media and tell everybody how popular you think this show should be. That is the best way to make a podcast grow. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. Probably the easiest thing I've ever done. The medication comes in the mail and it's very easy to use. I've been able to live my normal lifestyle and I've lost 20 pounds already and I've never felt better. It changed my life. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.